Chasing Cosby contains descriptions of violence, sexual content, and language that is not suitable for every audience. Please be advised. Good morning. Uh, my name is Kevin Steele. That's the new Montgomery County District Attorney, Kevin Steele. He's tall and thin with salt and pepper hair. It's December 30th, 2015, and Steele's holding a press conference today in Pennsylvania to say he's charging Bill Cosby with three counts of aggravated indecent assault. They are felonies of the second degree. The charges stem from the 2004 incident with Andrea Constand. On the evening in question, Mr. Cosby urged her to take pills that he provided to her and to drink wine. The effect of which rendered her unable to move or respond to his advances, and he committed aggravated indecent assault upon her. When U.S. Federal Judge Edward Rebrano unsealed legal filings that contained references to the civil deposition, and we learned about allegations from other victims under similar circumstances, reopening this case was not a question. I was one of the reporters at the press conference. After covering this case for more than a decade, I wondered what Steele knew that I didn't. From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Nikki Wisensee Egan, and this is Chasing Cosby. Episode 5, Seeking Justice. At this point, there are 63 women accusing Bill Cosby of assault or attempted assault. Cosby's confirmed some of the details of their stories in a deposition he gave Andrea Constan's lawyers. But Cosby's celebrity friends are beginning to turn on him now, and even TV network deals are falling through. I'm furiously reporting it all for People magazine. That text I got the night before Steele's press conference with the cryptic wording? It led me to break the news of his arrest. In the criminal case against Cosby, Steele wants to use the call that Andrea's mother, Gianna Constand, recorded on January 17, 2005. Despite Gianna's best efforts, Cosby doesn't reveal the name of the drug he gave her daughter on the call. Instead, he offers to set up an educational trust fund for Andrea. I would be willing, only at your feelings, uh-huh. to set up something either in Toronto uh-huh. or wherever the two of you feel she could go to school because she's got to she's got to go to school yeah she's got to hone those skills okay of course alright if, if she wanted to do that then I would be willing to, according to, meet with you guys, Mm -hmm. lay out what I think is the best, pay for the schooling, Uh and uh, whatever, as long as she maintains a 3.0 average, she'll be fine. Okay, so are you able to travel with her, let's say, uh, to to a city so that we can have a meeting? Well, I mean, it would be, yeah, I mean, I would, it would be nice to talk. 
Gianna, remember, turns the recording of the call over to Andrea's attorneys. But in 2005, Bruce Castor has deemed the call inadmissible in court because it was, according to him, an illegal wiretap. Eleven years later, Kevin Steele disagrees. It's a part of the case that we would like to present. So uh, we brought the motion. Uh, we believe that uh, the call should come in. It's a, it's a call that was made into Canada, uh, and it was legally obtained there. Uh, and we should be able to use it. Steele also wants to include another tape conversation as evidence in the criminal case, this time with Andrea and Peter Weiderlight, an assistant to Cosby's agent at William Morris. Weiderlight called Andrea on January 18, 2005. Hi there, how you doing? This is Pete from Kenny's office. I was calling on behalf of Mr. Bill Cosby. Okay. How you doing? I'm doing good. Great, great. So, um, I just wanted to get some specifics. I spoke to Mr. Cosby this morning, um, about coming in to see his performance. Okay. And I just, um, he, he spoke to you about some of those, you know, some of the details, right? Um, not really. He may have spoken to my mom about the details. Oh, uh, that's who he wanted me to speak to. Yeah, he said to, you know, call Andrea and ask to speak with, uh, with her mother. You know, this one can kind of get the details wrapped up, I guess you could say. Okay, so what, um, well, I don't know. It probably involves me, but what, what do we, uh, what do we, what's going on? <laughs> okay, well, what the plan, the first plan, I guess you could say, is for um, both of you to come in on a late Friday or Saturday morning. Okay. Um, we'll fly into Miami. Okay. Um, you know, stay at the Biltmore Hotel and then to leave on Sunday. Okay. Um, he's got, you know, got a couple performances during that time, which obviously you're, you'll be, you know, you'll be going to. Okay. But I just wanted to give you a call essentially to, you know, find out, you know, what time's good for you to leave, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera, all the details. Yeah, yeah, kind of like the, the nuts and bolts, I guess you could say. Okay, well, what I'll do is I'll consult with my mother, and Please. how about I have your number, so um, why don't I consult with her, and then I'll give you a call back. That would be true. Whatever, the sooner the better would be great, because I just want to call the, um, you know, the hotel up and just, you know, reserve the room. Okay. Um, do me a favor. In the meantime, I could always, what I'll do is I'll do this. Um, let me get the correct spelling of your name. And this way I can make the hotel reservations now. Andrea doesn't accept the offer to go to Cosby's Miami show. When I reached out to Widerlight for a comment, he said he cooperated fully with authorities during their criminal investigation. And, quote, my job as an agent's assistant was to book meetings and travel for the respective clients with lots of people, both men and women. If I ever had any reason to suspect wrongdoing, I would have raised my hand immediately. Unquote. A third piece of evidence Steele wants to use is a statement Cosby gave to police in January 2005. In it, Cosby says his encounter with Andrea was consensual and that he gave Andrea Benadryl because she was tense and couldn't sleep. Cosby also said he touched Andrea's breasts and vagina, but there was no penile penetration. By the way, a judge later agrees with Steele and allows all three pieces of evidence to be used in criminal proceedings against Cosby. A lot of this was new information to me, and I was shocked that Bruce Castor had all this information back in 2005, but didn't think it was enough to pursue charges. Here's the former DA in an Associated Press interview. I did it in writing, and I wrote my opinion in such a way as I thought conveyed to the whole world that I thought he had done it, and he had just gotten away with it because of lack of evidence. Although I did think that Cosby had done something wrong and done something uh, inappropriate, uh, thinking that and being able to prove it, of course, are, are different things. 
Today, after examination of all the evidence, we are able to seek justice on behalf of the victim. Steele ends the press conference by saying Cosby will be arraigned a few hours later in Elkins Park, Pennsylvania. All right, thank you very much. Around 2.30 p.m., Cosby's black SUV pulls up. Mr. Cosby, anything to say? Cosby climbs out, carrying a cane and wearing a gray hooded cardigan. Mr. Cosby, how do you respond to the charges? He appears distant and shakes his head a few times absently at the crowd. He's 78 years old and blind, so he does use a cane so that he can know what's coming in front of him. His attorney was sure to mention his disability in interviews. But look at just seven months ago, Cosby appearing at a school in Alabama. No cane. The arraignment takes about 15 minutes. Bail is set at $1 million. The comedian's ordered to surrender his passport. Without entering a plea as to his guilt, he's driven to the Cheltenham Police Department to be processed and fingerprinted. After posting bail, Cosby is free. In the year and a half that elapses between the arraignment and the trial, there are hearings, motions, and lots of debate about what characterizes admissible versus inadmissible evidence. There's also a grassroots movement underway to change statutes of limitations laws around sexual assault. Here's lawyer Gloria Allred. I had to inform these women that it was too late for them to file a lawsuit against Mr. Cosby because of the statute of limitations. This statute of limitations is an arbitrary time period set by law during which a victim must file a lawsuit or be forever barred from pursuing it. The public deserves to know if Mr. Cosby is a saint or a sexual predator. Many of the women who Allred represents want to extend or eliminate statutes of limitation laws in their states, including Lisa Lott Lublin, a teacher living in Las Vegas. I'm a survivor of Bill Cosby. I'm a strong woman who took back control of my life. Lisa is 23 when her agent sends her to meet Bill Cosby in the Elvis Presley suite of the Las Vegas Hilton. It's 1989. The meeting goes well, and Cosby begins to advise Lisa on how to further her acting and modeling careers. They grow close, Cosby even taking her family out to dinner one night to celebrate her mother's birthday. During an acting lesson, Cosby offers her two alcoholic drinks. He says, this will help you relax. Lisa takes a sip, and the next thing she knows, she's losing consciousness and ends up blacking out. I remember sitting at the table with my mother in the morning and blaming myself because I took the drinks, believing that I had embarrassed myself. I had plans and goals and dreams, and I thought I had blown it. You know, this guy's here, he wants to mentor me, and I made a huge mistake. Lisa doesn't report Cosby because she's not even sure she's been assaulted at first. But in 2015, she starts circulating a petition to eliminate the statute of limitations for sexual assault cases in Nevada. And we should say here that Lisa ends up testifying about what happened between her and Cosby at his criminal trial. We sent an email to Cosby's spokesman asking for a response, but he declined to comment. So we started with a petition. The problem with the petition was we didn't have a larger scale to really get the information out, to get Nevadans to understand what was going on. 
And we started thinking, you know, well, Gloria's doing a press conference that she wanted me to speak at, and she's allowing me to write my own words about the conference of what I want to say. And that immediately became our opportunity to get the message out in a broader scale. We contacted every legislator in Nevada legislation. We started visiting council people. And the biggest thing was finding one legislator to call us back. And we finally got Irene Bustamante Adams. And she realized how antiquated the law was. She was on board right away. Thank you very much for allowing me to testify today in support of AB 212, which would eliminate the statute of limitations for criminal prosecution of rape in Nevada. There's no possible way you can understand how long it takes to be able to have courage to say, I want to do something about it. The Nevada State Legislature is now considering a bill to remove the statute of limitations for sexual assaults, and it appears to have been inspired, at least partially, by the allegations several women have made against legendary comedian Bill Cosby. Currently, Nevada State law says prosecutors must file a case against the suspect within four years of when the alleged crime took place. Assembly Bill number 212 would remove that limitation. We waited for weeks for an answer. And finally, we get the answer, and it was a unanimous vote from the Senate. And the bill was passed. It was amazing. Remember Beth Farrier? She's the accuser from Colorado who says Cosby assaulted her after she tried to end a two-year affair. Glory had said to me, if you want to do anything with your time and your voice, I would highly recommend you look into your state's statute of limitations. Then Lisa and I start contacting one another. And I said to her at that time, what is the statute of limitations? I wasn't educated, I didn't know, but I quickly trained up. Beth learns that in Colorado, allegations of sexual assault must be reported within 10 years of an attack. This angers her. Beth doesn't think there should be an expiration date on reporting rape. So she starts contacting her state lawmakers. Every single day, I started emailing, texting, calling. I did not hear one word back from anyone until July of 2015, about the time when I came to hear about the deposition being open. And that's when I heard from Representative Rhonda Fields. And I said, I think I want to write a bill to abolish the statute of limitations in the state of Colorado. Sex assault victims in Colorado could soon have more time to report attacks. A bill to double the statute of limitations on sex assaults to 20 years passed the state house today. Half hour before we're supposed to go before the House committee, we get notification that the House is not going to agree to it being abolished. And Gloria said, Beth, it's better to take baby steps and get this done than to not. And the next thing you know, within 30 minutes, you know, you're pouring your whole self out in front of this 15-member House committee. Two Colorado women who claimed Cosby assaulted them decades ago testified in support of the bill. The bill is now going to the Senate. June the 10th, 2016, my bill extend the statute of limitations from 10 years. <laughs> A second. From 10 years? to extend the statute of limitations from 10 years to 20 years was signed into law in the state of Colorado June 10th of 2016. 
sign it. This is a moment Cosby accuser Beth Ferrier says she'll never forget. Walking out of Governor Hickenlooper's office seconds after he signed her bill into law. I've gone from fear and shame to absolute joy. Allred says she plans to push for similar changes in other states like California and thinks what Colorado did will only help. Some of the Cosby survivors formed a group to end SOL, the Statue of Limitations, in California. Janice Baker Kinney lives in Petaluma, California. She says Cosby assaulted her while she was working as a bartender at Harrah's in Reno, Nevada in 1982. We'll hear more of Janice's story in the next episode. I said I'd like to be involved, and I was asked if I wanted to start a chapter of that group in Northern California. So I was continually passing out information as much as I could. Now, some of Cosby's accusers claim that they were assaulted in California, and their stories go back decades. Now, the statute of limitations there is 10 years. In 2015, Janice starts contesting the statutes of limitations laws around sexual assault in California. So when they brought the bill to the committee to decide if they were going to pass it, they allowed people to line up to speak who were in support or against it. I had no idea you're supposed to say who you were, state your name, and if you were in support or not of this bill, and that was all you get to do. So I started to tell my story. I knew my uh, rapist, but I didn't call him that for over 30 years because we do have committee rules. And we had four witnesses, and these are supposed to be add-ons. We need to know who you are, uh, my name what is, your position is. All right, my name really is Janice can. Baker Kinney. My position is in support of this bill. Thank you so much. And I'm done. Madam Chair. If I can address the, the chairwoman. You know, um, we have rules that I know we like to follow. Yes, we do. But these are people that have been holding these scars for years and have been waiting for this opportunity to come forward and I want to hear their stories. Okay. If you may. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I got back in line remembering I had to say who I was and I said, hi, I'm Janice and I'm back. And then I proceeded to tell my story. Leno I Lou. Moni. I Stone. I Stone I. Um, I will, that bill has enough votes to pass. It was so exhilarating. We cheered and, you know, the decorum was not how you're supposed to behave in that assembly room. So we all went to the ladies' room and started jumping up and down and screaming and cheering. Here's Lily Bernard, who, as we heard in episode three, says Cosby assaulted her in the 1990s. We lobbied, we campaigned, we caravaned up to the state capitol, we testified in Senate hearings, in council hearings, and we abolished the statute of limitations on rape prosecution in California. Kristen Hauser of the National Sexual Violence Resource Center says it's not unusual for victims to wait years to report sexual assault. What we also know is that people that perpetrate sexual assault are usually not one-time offenders. So if we are going to limit a person's ability to 
seek justice, to identify somebody who's done this, to hold them accountable and perhaps remove their ability to continue harming other people, then we're not putting public safety first. The first day of Cosby's criminal trial is on June 5th, 2017. He arrives at the courthouse in Norristown, Pennsylvania at 8.30 a.m., then walks in with Keisha Knight Pulliam. She played the adorable Rudy on The Cosby Show. I came to support because this is where you hear the facts. This is where the truth happens. Here's Pulliam on The Today Show. Why was it important to you to be at the trial? At the end of the day, I truly believe you're innocent till proven guilty, and that's just not the man that I ever experienced. All the major networks are at the trial. ABC's Lindsay Davis is outside the courtroom in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning, George. To call this a highly anticipated trial may be a bit of an understatement. Day one, Bill Cosby faces three charges of aggravated indecent assault, each one of them carrying up to 10 years of time in prison. He has denied all of those charges. Once inside the courtroom, the judge had set strict parameters, no transmitting emails or text messages from computers or phones. Several accusers are in the courtroom, but Cosby's wife, Camille, is not here, nor are his daughters. The prosecution said Constant was betrayed by someone she thought was a mentor and asked the jury to push aside his larger-than-life celebrity persona and see him for who they say he really is. Then Cosby's charismatic lead defense attorney, Brian McMonigle, takes his turn. His opening is powerful. He says Cosby's an innocent man who's been wrongfully accused. Bill Cosby's defense team argued that Andrea Constant repeatedly lied about her relationship with Cosby and her alleged sexual assault. McMonagall says Andrea Constant gave conflicting statements to authorities, and that's why Castor didn't charge Cosby in 2005. Next, Steele calls Kelly Johnson to the stand. Steele had petitioned the court to allow 13 Cosby accusers to testify, but the judge had only permitted Kelly to share her story. Kelly's three-hour testimony is emotional and powerful. She says she meets Cosby in 1996 at the William Morris Agency in Los Angeles. Kelly is a 34-year-old mother and is an assistant to an agent named Tom Ilias. Cosby is at the time represented by Ilias and is the agency's biggest client. Well, Mr. Cosby and I had a cordial professional relationship. Over time, he began to take a more personal interest in me. I considered him a father figure. Soon after they meet, Cosby begins to mentor Kelly and starts to give her acting lessons. One day in 1996, Cosby invites Kelly to lunch at the Bel Air Hotel to discuss her future. I had been instructed that morning to meet him directly at his bungalow. When I arrived, he answered the door in his bathrobe and slippers. After the initial pleasantries, I was told that we would be having lunch in his suite. <coughs> Food and wine were brought in. And shortly thereafter, he told me I needed to relax and he offered me a large white pill. I asked him what it was. He said, would I give you anything that would hurt you? Trust me, it will just help you relax. I said I was fine and politely declined. I declined several times, but he kept insisting. And so finally, I ingested it. 
He insisted that I open my mouth and lift my tongue to make sure that I swallowed it. Next, I remember waking up in a bed with Mr. Cosby naked beneath his open robe. Unsure how to proceed, Kelly testifies that she goes home after the incident and reports to work the next day. Then she sees Cosby's on the phone with her boss. Kelly picks up the line to listen in. She hears the comedian saying to Ilias, I don't know, I'm not crazy about how she's been doing. It sounds like Cosby is trying to get Kelly fired. So she goes to HR and reports the assault. She testifies that she files a workers' comp claim and is later terminated. At the trial, the lawyer representing the William Morris Agency says they settled her workers' comp claim with a lump sum of money. We don't know Cosby's side of Kelly's story because he didn't comment on this podcast. At the end of Kelly's testimony, Allred is proud of how her client has held up. I mean, she was able to numerous times look right at the jury and talk with the jury and share with the jury that she suffered at the hands of Mr. Cosby and how Mr. Cosby put her in this no-win position and why she ultimately could no longer work at, at William Morris. Next, Andrea Constan takes the stand. This was the testimony everyone had been waiting for, and the courtroom so quiet you can hear a pin drop. Andrea's 44 years old now. Her hair's short and she's all business. She no longer has her long red curls or the carefree smile from the photo widely circulated of her back in 2005. I had one job, and my job was to tell the truth. Despite feeling uncomfortable, feeling overwhelmed, feeling all the stress in the courtroom and the jury and the journalists, I did the best that I could and got up there. Cosby swivels his chair to face her. The comedian rests his chin on the palm of his hand, a thoughtful expression on his face. I tried to be as relaxed as possible, but it's very uncomfortable for any person who's a sexual assault victim in a trial to get up and recount and rehash everything that happened and to be face-to-face with the person who wronged you in the court. Um, the lawyers. It was not a comfortable scenario. Andrea begins her story, how she first meets Cosby, how he starts reaching out to help the Temple women's basketball team. Slowly, they build a mentorship, a friendship. Andrea recounts one visit at his Elkins Park home in which Cosby places a hand on her thigh. Another visit a few months later, Andrea says Cosby touches her again, this time reaching toward the zipper of her pants. She pushes his hand away and says, I'm not here for that. I don't want that. Cosby tells it differently. Here's what he says in his deposition. I don't hear her say anything, and I don't feel her say anything. And so I continue and I go into the area that is somewhere between permission and rejection. I am not stopped. No meant no. You have a right to say whether you want somebody's hand off your knee. I mean, this is a conversation that is really starting to happen in in a very big way now. Then Andrea walks the jury through the details of the January 2004 assault, the one that we told you about in the first episode of this podcast, which Cosby said was consensual. After that night, because Cosby was on Temple's Board of Trustees then, and Andrea was working for the women's basketball team, she tried to keep things professional. But Andrea testifies that one day, desperate for answers, 
she drives to his house and asks the comedian, what did you give me? To which Cosby replies, I thought you had an orgasm, didn't you? I did not, Andrea says. After Andrea finishes her story, Cosby's attorney cross-examines her for seven hours. Why did you hire a lawyer before reporting the assault to the police? Why did you call Cosby 53 times after the assault? Why did you go to Cosby's shows with your parents after the assault? And on and on and on. Here's prosecutor Kristen Fedden. Andrea did a tremendous job on the stand. She maintained her composure. And you always hope that when you close out a case, that your victim or witness, that their honesty shines through all of those attacks. Andrea's mom takes the witness stand next. It's an emotional testimony, and at one point, Gianna Constan breaks into tears. Steele plays that key piece of evidence for the jury, the recorded phone call of Gianna questioning Cosby about what happened that night in January 2004. Cosby doesn't react. I tried to just concentrate on what I had to say, and I did feel his vibes, but I didn't really look. I tried to avoid looking at him. The lawyers make their closing arguments, and the jury begins its deliberations. We leave the courtroom to await a verdict. For six days, the jury debates the arguments presented in the case. I'd later learn from press coverage that things got extremely heated. One juror punched a wall. Another started smoking again. Many tears were shed. Finally, on a gloomy Saturday morning, Judge Stephen O'Neill calls everyone back to the courtroom. The jury deliberated for more than 52 hours over six days. But this morning, they told the judge they could not reach a unanimous verdict on any of the three counts of aggravated indecent assault. A mistrial was declared today in the sexual assault case against Bill Cosby. Here's Andrew's lawyer, Dolores Traiani. When the jury was out that long, and, you know, I've been a lawyer for 44 years, uh, I kind of knew that this was either going to be a not guilty or a hung jury. And um, it was a, a hung jury. In one corner of the room was the Cosby team, and the rest of the courtroom were a lot of the women who had come to be supportive of Andrea, a lot of the women who had been assaulted by him. And there were so many people in that room who were crying, and they needed to be consoled. And there was Andrea in the midst of all of this, hugging these people, telling them it was going to be okay, telling them not to be upset, telling them that she had faith that justice was going to be done. But outside the courthouse... In a steady rain, with his head held high, Bill Cosby listened on as his defense team declared victory. Publicist Andrew Wyatt. Mr. Cosby, power is back. It's back. It's been restored. Here's Gloria Allred again, speaking to reporters on June 17, 2017. I'm never surprised by what a jury will do. And as I said the other day, it's not over till it's over. And it may not be over yet. It's over for this jury, but the prosecution can still refile. That's exactly what happens. Then the Me Too movement takes off. Coming up on the next episode of Chasing Cosby. So when I saw him in that courtroom, so much took over me. When women are being attacked the way they were being attacked, uh, the offensive language that was being used, it was difficult to not react. It was degrading and very upsetting. 
And I said, there's nothing funny about what you did to these women. Chasing Cosby is reported and hosted by me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. It's a Los Angeles Times podcast and a production of LA Times Studios and Herzog and Company. Our producer is Alexandra Zaslow. Our audio engineers are Angus Spottiswood, Pete Ciarto, Brett Whitlow, Mike Heflin, and Eric Montgomery. Production help from Paige Heimson, Aaron Sands, and Robert Glenn Smith. The original music you heard in this podcast was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Our sound design is by SnapSound. Thanks to everyone who granted us access to their archives. You can find the list at latimes.com slash Chasing Cosby. Chasing Cosby is executive produced by Abby Fentress Swanson for the Los Angeles Times, Mark Herzog and Andy Beckerman for Herzog and Company, and me, Nikki Wisensee Egan. If you're the victim of sexual assault or know someone who is, you can get help by calling the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673.